Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, growth, geopolitics and the future of humanity. We speak to the founder of HAO Capital, Charles Liu. Global growth may have been more resilient than expected in the early parts of this year, but prospects for 2024 are not looking robust, with many experts pointing the finger at China's weaker-than-expected recovery. But is that really the issue? And where do the current global geopolitical crises fit into our shared economic future? I'm joined now from Beijing by Charles Liu, investor, political economist and founder of HAO Capital. Thanks for coming on the agenda, Charles. Now, how would you say that China is transforming the international system as we know it? I think the best way to describe it is the international system is in the process of being transformed by many factors, more than China. The multipolar multipolar setup is already well in, in, in progress. It's no longer one country dominating everything. But in terms of China's participation, becoming the major trading partner of over 120 countries, becoming the manufacturing powerhouse it has become, is certainly contributing to this transformation. I think what we see today in terms of China's transformation is more and more countries are tied into the Chinese economy, either through export or import, and through the supply chain. And that is the most significant, I believe, factor that is transforming the world economy. Let's zone in on China, because the, the job market ha has got tougher. The property sector is heavily indebted. Economic growth is slowing. What do you see as the prospects for growth? I think we have to look at this, starting with President Donald Trump's trade war against China. That started five years ago. And then we had the pandemic. And then we have the Ukraine-Russian conflict. So globally and domestically, there are a lot of headwinds. So it's not unusual for the Chinese economy to slow down. But the numbers for last month is already improving. PMI is now above 50 again. And massive trade increases and investment increases from the Middle East coming into China, I think is a very important factor. Now, in terms of growth, there's no question that exports to Europe and the United States because of inflation in those countries have really declined. Consumers there can no longer afford to buy as they used to. But there are things which are positive. For example, China has become the largest exporter of cars in the world. This is inconceivable two years ago to surpass Japan. So electric vehicles contributed to it, and then solar panels contributing to export growth as well, and batteries and some other new sectors. So I believe that uh, though some, fact, some sectors have slowed down, others have picked up. Do you worry, though, about the implications of slowdown spilling over into the region and into to other parts um, of the international economy? I wouldn't put it that way. I'm sorry. I wouldn't say it's spilling over of China's slowdown into other, other parts of the world. It's other parts of the world's slowdown. Is spilling, is spilling into China's export. 
exports and export growth. But I'm not really concerned about Southeast Asia. ASEAN countries are doing well. They're picking up, starting to, and their economies are tied into the Chinese economy in a fairly integrated way. They're all part of the similar supply chain or integrated supply chain. And it's very significant market as well. I think there was a study that 80% of new arrivals into middle class in the world for the next five years will be 80% will be from Asia. So that tells you something about the potential market that exists for Chinese products and for Asian products. That's manufacturing. Let's talk about infrastructure um, and overseas investment because China is marking the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative. So what's your outlook on big investment and, and where do you see it developing over the next 10 years? I think the first 10 years is really building infrastructure. That's what Belt and Road was all about. Roads, ports, airports, railways, and telecommunications and electricity generation. That's the first 10 years. That has been done in a very large scale and has been quite successful. But after that, the next phase in the developing countries' development will be modernization of the economy, including industrialization. So that will be, I think, for the next decade. Again, China will participate actively in this. Now, you're a financier, you're an entrepreneur, and also um, a former advisor to the Chinese government. If you could give President Xi some economic guidance right now, what would it be? I think the only thing that I can, I can say is continue on our current path. You cannot do things too quickly, too abruptly. And then all the geopolitical conflicts which have arisen over the course of the last couple of years certainly doesn't augur well for economic growth. So one has to be cautious. One has to be prepared for all kinds of contingencies. So you're talking about playing the long game but I wonder where that fits in to, to being cleaner and being greener, because uh, sustainability really is going to fit into that future of global trade, what it has to. Um, how's that going to work? Well, then there's the question of, you must have developed countries which have been spewing carbon into the air for the last two centuries, take more responsibility for what they have done to, go to climate change. And you cannot tell developing countries, for example, you cannot tell India, sorry, you cannot generate electricity anymore. You cannot burn fossil fuels anymore. They need to develop. They need to have electricity. They need to have greener prospects, but somebody has to pay for it. And the developed countries have to bear their share of the responsibility. I think sustainability in terms of China is, is significant in terms of contribution to the world. 80, more than 80% of solar panels in the world now, the manufacturing capacity is in China, and more than 50% of wind power generating equipment is also in facilities is also in China. So China can make a huge contribution to decarbonization and climate change. Well, what about the, the onus on businesses, on corporations? Uh, what more would you like to see being done there to, to, be, to, be, to be greener 
and to take more of an initiative. I think ESG is now becoming very significant in, in the judgment over companies. And that has to continue and that has to be more actively pursued. But that's something that really has to be global. And unless it's global, you know, you cannot have one part of the world going green, the another part of the world continuing to spew out carbon. So I think it has to be a global effort, a coordinated effort, and real collaboration between developing and developed countries in this, even on the, on the corporate side. Because you can potentially have a company that is doing something here and then not do anything in another country or to pollute in one country and not pollute in another country just because of differences in regulation. So it has to be global. Let's talk about some of the other shocks to, to the international system. Um, and I'd like to start with the, the, the conflict in Israel and Palestine. How big a test um, of China's Middle East ambitions is that? I, I would say China's Middle Eastern uh, projections, I wouldn't say its ambitions, uh, is integrating into integrating into the one belt, one road economies. And as you will know, that before shale gas and shale oil, US was the biggest buyer of Middle Eastern energy. And now US is a competitor to the Middle East in terms of energy. And the biggest buyer, the biggest customer for their energy is now China. So. There is a very important trading relationship there. Aside from China buying their energy, China is also a major export of consumer products and other things going to the Middle East. So there's a very strong trading relationship between China and the Middle East. But the conflict, I hope China can also play a role. But this role is more difficult this time than the Saudi and the Iranian conflict which China brokered an agreement on, the restoration of diplomatic relations on. Why? Because we all know who stands behind Israel. And we can also suspect who's behind Hamas. So if it's a proxy conflict, then it's more than what you do with the proxies. You have to deal with what's behind the proxies. And that makes it more complicated for China. So what role do you see for China as a, a potential peace broker? I think China can round up more developing country friends, friends among the developing countries, to push for a peace, peaceful solution or long-term, a permanent solution to the problem instead of the piecemeal approach which has taken place over the course of the last half a century. Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, uh, was in Beijing for, for the BRI Forum, um, marking, of course, as we've discussed, the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative. How far do you think that underscores China's economic and diplomatic support for Russia? I think in, in terms of China's relationship with Russia, there's strategic fits. China needs raw materials and energy and Russia needs to sell their raw materials and energy. And China 
is happily engaged in trade to do exactly that. So I wouldn't call it support of Russia, but it's normal, good neighborly trading relationships which exist. And that will continue to be further expanded if there are continued sanctions against Russia by the West. President Xi recently said that China's relationship with the United States is the most important bilateral relationship in the world. So what's your take on the current state of that relationship? I think in the immediate future, there is a softening of the relationship, a softening of the tension. With number of visits from the U.S. senior officials to China, followed by a visit of uh, Chuck Schumer and the Senate group, and actually, to my surprise, they got to meet with they got to meet with President Xi. So, I suspect this is all in preparation for a potential heads of state meeting at the APEC in the U.S. next month. And without preparations there won't be any heads of state meeting. So if the preparations are sufficiently in place, I think there will be a meeting between President Xi and President Biden in November in the U.S. doing APEC. But whether or not that would change the, co the competition between the two or the conflict that exists between the two, it's very hard to say because U.S. elections are coming up. So anything can happen. To gather votes, anything can be said and anything can be done. So it's really hard to say whether or not we will see a longer term solution to the relationship. But what would you like to see and what would you, do you think will come out of that meeting next month? I think next month the meeting will probably, if there is a meeting, there will probably be some things announced that is important to both sides. For example, on the trade issue, the duties imposed by the U.S. by President Trump on Chinese or Chinese products actually hurt U.S. consumers and U.S. Com companies. And this is what even Janet Yellen had been saying for quite some time. So that could be lifted, but using the argument that this really, really helps to tame, tame inflation in the U.S. and it's good for the U.S. population and the voters. But there is then the question of President Biden, you've been in office for almost two years. Why do you wait until now to lift it? But, you know, that's uh, probably not going to be asked. So that's one thing. Second, there will definitely be something on climate change. That's something that the two sides can actually reach an agreement on more easily. But China is probably going to be very, very careful about its commitment because it has made a number of commitments and actually carried through. For those of us who live in Beijing, we see how much change, climate change treatment of the, of the air has taken place in, in Beijing, for example. Yeah. Phenomenal improvement. So... The Chinese government is, is very committed to do it, but whether or not U.S. will be willing to put up some serious cash to help other developing countries to address the problem, that's uh, difficult to say. They don't have a lot of serious cash lying, lying around. 
But there's something else I think is interesting that President Xi um, has said is that how China and the United States get along will determine the future of humanity. I mean, what do you think about that? I think what is meant there is that if the two sides get along well, it's good for the rest of the world. It's good for human, humanity overall. If the two sides don't get along well, then a lot of energy will be spent in fighting each other, not necessarily literally fighting, but creating uh, inefficiencies in the global supply chain, in the global trading system. And it's really not beneficial to the rest of the world, to other countries, if the two sides don't get along well. There is definitely, according to the Chinese side, Chinese view that the two sides, if collaborating, if collaborating properly, can actually be beneficial to both sides. So there are tensions and points of conflict, aren't there? I mean, from manufacturing, especially um, around things like semiconductor chips, to more geopolitical tensions. I think in terms of chips, what the U.S. sanctions against China has brought about is China's own development of the chips. That's number one. But even more important is it's actually not good to have two parallel tracks running. It's, more, it's inefficient. It's not good for the rest of the world. But I think the U.S. has come to the conclusion that they cannot control Chinese expertise or development of chips already. They're looking at further sanctions or more harsher sanctions. We'll see whether or not that does anything. I don't think so. But all the language has been around security risks, cyber security, and those kind of things. Cyber security. Now, I would ask this. If you take a chip by itself, the chip is only doing processing. What is actually the whole machine that potentially may have security risk because there could be backdoor access? I don't think the backdoor access is tied directly to chips. So the argument about chips being national security is more along the lines of China developing chips, developing too quickly, developing too well. That's a threat on our chip industry, on our science, on our technology advances or advancement. Charles, I can't help but wonder, um if your past, you know, as a, as a former um, American and now a Chinese assistant, if, if that informs your view of China-U.S. relations? I think my giving up my U.S. status and taking a PRC passport um, had a lot to do with the circumstances of the world at that time. Marching with Martin Luther King for civil rights, all this, I found all this freedom, democracy, and uh, liberty and equality had uh, a long way to go before its reality in America. And then the war against Vietnam, fighting against the war in Vietnam with the students, demonstrations, and so on. Again, what right does the U.S. have to go all the way to, to the other part of the world and bomb the hell out of another country? So. I just felt at that time that 
it's actually a lot of hypocrisy being propagated by the U.S. They're not what they say they are. So I decided might as well just be Chinese. You, you mentioned that, that you, you were involved with, with, with Martin Luther King in the 1960s and his civil rights movement. I mean, some 60 years on, do, do you think the United States and in, indeed the world ha, has learned from that turbulent time? I think the situation has gotten a lot worse because how the U.S. is divided, not only along racial lines, but also along class lines and also among party lines. It's along so many lines the U.S. is divided. And increasingly, European countries seem to be divided as well. Even small parties can have some percentage of the vote and become part of the ruling grouping of countries. The first, the first one that comes to mind is Germany. You basically have what they have, traffic light groupings. So it's no longer a country that has long-term strategic views on how it's to develop and how it's to help its own people, but battles internally. And I think in the U.S. in particular, this election, electoral politics basically goes into the re-election cycle without thinking strategically on what's good for the country. And uh, as uh, a professor at Yale University recently wrote a book, it's titled American Tactics, China Strategies. China thinks in the long term and America is revolving around the election cycles. For, for example, congressmen, you, you get elected, you start campaigning for the next round of elections in two years already. Charles, you mentioned Germany, so let's bring things to, to, to this side of the, the world. I, I'm wondering what role you feel there is left for somewhere like the European Union on the world stage. I mean, there are lots of high-level visits planned in the next few weeks from Brussels to Beijing. I think there is a significant role if it gets its act together. For example, these sanctions against Russia is actually hurting Europe more than anybody else, hurting Europe more than Russia. And to be politically correct, the Europeans are very, very harsh on not doing business with Russia. And this leads to what? Leads to deindustrialization in Germany because your energy costs are so high, your raw material costs are so high, you're no longer competitive on a global basis. And we, saw that, we see that clearly in the Chinese context already, where German direct foreign investment industrially in China has reached an almost all-time record, well over 10 billion euros so far this year. So what does that do for your economy? It deindustrializes it and it's hardening the life of its people. So I think Europe has to decide whether or not it wants to follow the path of the U.S. and buy U.S. LNG, or to find its own independent interest, independent policies, especially when it comes to dealing with China. 
There are some pressure points, though, aren't there, from individual European countries when it comes to dealing with China. I'm thinking particularly about the automotive industry. Ah, yes. <laughs> so the, Euro, the European Parliament wants to study whether or not there are subsidies being granted to Chinese electric vehicle manufacturers. First of all, every country provides support or incentives or subsidies to any new sectors in manufacturing or in technologies. Europe, Europe take Germany for example, just allocated 40 billion euros to support the chip industry. Is that government support? Of course it's government support. Coming soon on the agenda, supply chain challenges and how to solve them. Is global manufacturing ready for the fourth industrial revolution? But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all the Agenda team here in London, goodbye.